0: And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo, and it is Friday, the end of the broadcast week, and uh, got a great show in store for us today. <clears throat> As we're done in the past, we're going to continue and look at apologetic classics. You know, there's just so many apologetic gems out there, gathering dust on bookshelves and used bookstores and such. Maybe even on your own bookshelves, Uh, you might have one of these classics and you just either haven't read it or haven't read it in a long time. Well, uh, that's why we love having Carl Keating come in on the show. Carl's going to be coming up on the other side of the break, and we're going to take a look at um, an apologetic classic. Actually, uh, I don't know if this will be strictly speaking apologetics, but it is a very interesting author. and That is the works of V.M. Morton. So we'll be looking at uh, all these books. And actually, this is one of those episodes. Uh, usually, Carl and I, we love the classics. And so whenever he suggests a possible um, book for our discussion on the air, uh, I've usually read it and familiar with it and, and I love it as well. And, and you know, uh, we have a, a really cool conversation there. Occasionally, you know, Carl is so well-read, <laughs> Occasionally, Carl will bring up a book or a series of books that I've never uh, read before, and that's the case here with uh, H.V. Morton. So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, H.V. Morton and his works on the other side of the break. So, hey, this is cool. You know, it just gives me another reason to pick up more books, (laughs) add them to my uh, apologetics bookshelf and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Like I said, that's on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to do a finding and fallacy, although on Fridays, as you know, we do CrossFit training here in the dojo. We switch things up. Instead of doing an informal fallacy and looking at its definition and application in apologetics, um, we're going to look at a propaganda technique. Today's propaganda technique is one that's used a lot, and that is the transference of value technique. We're also going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father in the realm of apologetics is a biggie. Uh, Very, very important father. If you don't know about him, you need to know it is St. Irenaeus of Lyon. And so, hey, we got our docket all set and ready to roll. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. So welcome aboard all of you listening on radio around the country. And, of course, the live stream peeps out there. Howdy. And all of you listening on podcasts around the world and in the future. It's great to have you on board as uh, we wrap up this week in Hands-On Apologetics. Uh, It's great to have you. By the way, uh, if you'd like to access this show online, perhaps there's somebody you know that uh, here's you hear some material you think that they, they'd be interested in, then you can share the show with them. All you have to do is just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and click on Hands on Apologetics and boom, you'll have all the shows on archive ready to roll. And um, yeah, you can download it, you can share it, uh, you can tell your friends about it. It's that easy, folks. Or you could do it through the handy-dandy phone app as well. Also, I want to give you the official Dojo mailbox in case you would like to send me an email. Love to hear from you. It is questions at handsonapologetics.com. And uh, that's the way to get a hold of me. And I do try to answer your emails. So thank you in advance for your emails. And also, since it's Friday, I always give a shout out to a channel that I do on YouTube. It's the little channel that could. I honestly thought I'd only get maybe 100 people, maybe 200 to subscribe. We're like over 4,000 and counting uh, subscriptions to this channel. It's called the Apocrypha Apocalypse, and it's a cool channel. It's very unique, very narrow, focused, and uh, it surrounds all the questions around why Catholic Bibles are bigger. Why do we have seven books that are not found in Jewish and Protestant Bibles in the Old Testament? And I do this with uh, my co-host, uh, David, De- uh, David Zavarez and also uh, William Albrecht. They're my co-host. And uh, we're, in fact, we're probably going to do a live show next week. And uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, definitely, if you haven't checked it out, please do go on uh, YouTube. Just search by name or Hands not hands-on, but uh, search uh, Apocrypha Apocalypse, it'll come up. And and if you like it, please subscribe, uh, do a thumbs-up, and leave a comment. You know, comments are also important for the algorithm. And that's the name of the game, folks, is the algorithm, because uh, we want this information to get into the hands of our separated brethren. And the only way to do that is if they find it on YouTube or anywhere else. So... Uh, sharing it and uh, liking it and leaving comments. All of that helps with uh, boosting the numbers and giving our greater visibility. Okay. So enough of that. Let's go to our finding of the fallacy, which is propaganda technique. And it is the transference of value. Now this operates, this particular uh, propaganda technique operates on the level that we tend to associate things together whenever we hear them or see them together, especially seeing The, the power of sight is so powerful in our imaginations. So much so that when you see a person standing next to another person or an object, whatever positive or negative values you have for that other person or the object will be transformed or transferred rather to the individual, so for example, an American flag for Americans usually is a very positive sign. So if you want to get that positive feelings, the the warm fuzzy feelings, the patriotic uh, pa- um, patriotic feelings, and transfer them to a candidate, say, say a political candidate, all you have to do is just make sure there's an American flag somewhere nearby in frame so that you can see them next to the flag. And what occurs in our minds is that we transfer the good feelings we have about the flag with the candidate because we associate the two together. This could be done in a positive aspect, uh, like American flag, or it could be negative. So if there's someone who is very odious in the popular view, um, and you can get your opponent to be next to that person, or you have a photo of them, that photo will give you a transference of negative value. So it'll make people think the bad things about the uh, the person who's odious and transfer them to your opponent. Like I said, this occurs an awful, awful lot, especially in the realm of politics. Uh, we uh, see all sorts of indications of that. Maybe a politician is... By or associates with a movie star or someone who's very popular at the time, hoping that the popularity is transferred to the opponent, or hit ads, you know, those uh, ads that you see where they strike out at their opponents, they'll have black and white photos of them standing next to Adolf Hitler or something, right? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who who is definitely not held in high esteem. And the idea is that that negative value will transfer to the opponent. So, you know, the thing about propaganda techniques is once you're aware that it's being used on you, the magic's gone. So next time you see an ad or something like that, and you see um, a particular figure next to or conversing with someone, realize that could be an instance of the propaganda technique of transference of value. All right, let's go to meet our early church father for today. Very excited because he's a very important figure in apologetics. Lots of great information about the early church and uh, the Catholicity of the early church. And that's St. Irenaeus of Lyon. St. Irenaeus was the second Bishop of Lyon, succeeding the martyred Bishop of St. Pontius in the year 177 or 178 AD. When he himself was perhaps about 37 years of age, he's a native of Asia Minor, probably of Smyrna, uh, where in his youth, he had been a pupil of St. Polycarp. St. Polycarp, by way, being an apostolic father and a disciple of the Apostle John. So he is very closely related to the time of the apostles. Hearing the preaching of Polycarp, he basically hears the teaching of John through his lips. His passage to Gaul, which is modern-day France, where we meet him as an as a esteemed presbyter in the Church of Lyon, immediately before the death of his Episcopal uh, predecessor, is uh, one of history's mysteries. We don't really know why he's in uh, Gaul, but he is there, and he's well-received. And uh, anyway, uh, true to his name, he is a peacemaker. As Eusebius remarks, it was Irenaeus who sought to make peace between Pope St. Victor of Rome and Polycrates of Ephesus. When Victor was threatening to excommunicate uh, the latter and actually most of the churches in Asia Minor, um, it was Irenaeus who steps in. After the incident of about the year 190 AD, Irenaeus disappears from history and is presumed to have died around the year 202 AD. Not until Gregory of Tours wrote his History of the Franks did we find Irenaeus mentioned as a martyr, and such a late testimony is necessarily suspect, especially in view of the fact that Eusebius who has good knowledge of Irenaeus, says nothing of his supposed martyrdom. So not really sure whether he dies as a martyr. Of course, his big work, and the one that's loaded with great apologetic material, is his detection and overthrow of the Gnosis so-called, otherwise known as against heresies. And that is our early church father for today, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon. And coming up next, we'll be chatting with Carl Keating, and we're going to be talking about Catholic apologetic Classic, the works of B. H. B. Morton. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And it's time to take a look at Apologetics Classic. And uh, to help us do that, we have our good friend Carl Keating Uh, Carl Keating, as you know, is the founder and the uh, person who kicked off the modern Catholic apologetic movement here in the United States. He's the founder of Catholic Answers. Nowadays, he's a full-time author, and so far 16 of his books have been published, including some apologetic classics themselves, like Catholicism, Fundamentalism, Debating Catholicism series, Book for Life, No Apology. He's written in several Genres. You could check out his work at carlkeating.com. And Carl, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics.
1: Gary, great to be back with you again. It's always a pleasure. It's uh, one of the high points of my month to be able to be on the air with you.
0: Wow, and it certainly is for me too. And because we both love classic works in the area of apologetics. And Carl, you know, many times we both read the same works. We both love them. But sometimes you bring up works that I've never read or didn't wasn't even aware of, and that's the case today.
1: Uh, it is the case today, apparently. Um, so uh, I will have to make some kind of correction in your reading habits so you can okay. get to not just today's book, but others by the same author.
0: Okay. And the author is? H.V. Morton.
1: Uh, let me explain a bit about who he was. Uh, born in England in 1892 and died in 1979. And he was, in the first half of the 20th century, probably the most popular travel writer in the UK. He mm-hmm. began as a newspaper man, and gradually his journalism took him to writing uh, stories about places he'd visited in England and so on, and they were so popular that he started writing a series of books, a long series of books, about places that he went. And he first got notoriety, actually, uh, in 1923, when the Daily Express newspaper, which he was writing for, sent him to Egypt to cover for the newspaper the excavation of Tutankhamun's tomb. And, of course, that became the most famous pharaonic tomb ever opened. And so uh, Morton was there and and was able to uh, basically publish the first report back to England about the find at that famous tomb. But after that, he engaged mainly in travel writing uh, and he wrote just a slew of books. And I've got a good portion of them. I've probably got at least a dozen of his books. Uh, In the 1920s, he had a series with similar titles. Uh, It started with In Search of England, then In Search of Scotland, In Search of Ireland, In Search of Wales. And in each of these books, like his later books, he didn't produce a normal travel guide like we would see today. You know, go to see these sites, here are places to stay, here are the favorite restaurants. None of that is in there. These are really history books and culture books uh, you're looking through his eyes as he walks or drives through the various areas he's visiting. And I especially liked the books because of his minute knowledge of history and customs and personalities of the time. Hmm. And so in the 20s, he focused on mainly things in the British Isles while writing some other stuff, too. But in the 1930s, he ended up producing, among other books, several that have what I would consider be basically religious themes. In 1934, it began with In the Steps of the Master, and that was followed two years later with In the Steps of St. Paul. So so the first book was, of course, Jerusalem, the Holy Land, and then St. Paul and his wider uh, travels. And then a couple years after that, Through the Lands of the Bible. So he considers things in from North Africa through the Holy Land up to present-day Turkey and so forth. And uh, he later wrote one which I have not seen, one of of his I haven't seen, called Women in the Bible. Uh, So he's got a number of books like that, and and then one of his late books relatively in the 1950s was In the Steps of Jesus. And then finally the book that we're uh, going to talk about today, uh, not quite finally, because he did write some more after this, but 1957 he produced A Traveler in Rome. Later he'd supplement that A Traveler in Italy, A Traveler in Southern Italy, and uh, even a book very precise, The Waters of Rome, which really, you know, and before another month, then re, that republished later, as The Fountains of Rome. the a whole book just on the Fountains of Rome. Hmm. But uh, one of my favorite, I think maybe my favorite of his books of the religious-oriented books mm-hmm. uh, would be this one that we're talking about today called A Traveler in Rome. And I call it religiously oriented, but it's, he's really looking at Rome throughout its history. Now, you know, if you go to Italy, and probably the two most popular cities for Americans to visit are Rome and Florence. Florence is, nowadays— a city of the Renaissance. Almost all its buildings were built during the Renaissance era. Some are a bit older, like Giotto's bell tower at the Duomo, well, at the Cathedral, uh, which would be actually later Middle Ages. But most of the buildings, the famous buildings in Florence, are Middle Ages. Uh, even though Florence was established as an ancient Roman colony, uh, you know, a thousand years before that, there's almost nothing left in, in Florence. Of a Roman vintage, Rome is quite different. You really got Rome divided into two eras. One is the Roman era, uh, the time of the Caesars, and you've got such things as the Colosseum and the Roman Forum, and you know, and so much else. Then you've got uh, Catholic Rome, especially the Baroque period with uh, St. Peter's Basilica and, and so many other churches you know, built in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and so on. And so you've got, uh, but you've also got in Rome, you know, churches from earlier centuries, churches that were built in the Middle Ages, and and so on. Hmm. So in Rome, you get a much wider calendar than you do in Florence. Uh, and, you know, I, I love both of those cities. And hmm. uh, I'm hoping to get back, to Italy and visit both of them within a few months because I've not been for a while since before the pandemic. Hmm. And uh, they appeal to me in different ways. You know, it's, it's often said that Italy contains half of all the fine art in Europe and Florence contains half of all the fine art in Italy. Well, <laughs> that may not be mathematically correct, but it's, it sure feels that way when you're in Florence because it's a city of art. You know, it's got the, mm-hmm. the world's number one art gallery with the Uffizi. But Rome is the city of Christian culture. And uh, of course, it, it became first the Roman empire, then the heir to the Roman empire, the Holy Roman empire, and then and down to our own era. So it has a fascination historically, which is much broader than really just about any place else. So, I've got this book here in my hands and it's a pretty fat book. It's uh, over 400 pages. A Traveler in Rome by H. V. Morton uh, published in 1957. And uh, it's just a delightful book. It's one of those things that he's such a good writer. It's almost like you're reading a novel. It's Hmm. not like you get one of these, you know, guidebooks top 10 things to see in Rome kind of thing that gives you the opening hours and the cost and the street address, and it tells you to go to someplace, you know, nearby and grab your lunch. You know, that's not what this book is. Um, so there's nowhere in here that he, where he recommends a place to stay other than maybe in passing some, some hotel he stays at. And there's no place in here where he gives the prices and the hours and that kind of stuff. That's not kind of the kind of book it is. Right. Uh, instead it's an extremely sympathetic account From basically a modern man's eyes, of a city that stretched back two millennia and what he Mm. found as he walked around it. And of course, this wasn't based on just one trip of his to Rome. Then there's so much in here. I mean, he's got more details about Rome and and personalities and and often very small things uh, that are just delightful to read about, more so than. I have found in regular history books about Rome. Okay. Hmm. So uh, H.P. Martin is somebody I'm going to recommend all of our listeners to turn to and grab a book from. I think most of his books, many of his books at least, are still available, and the ones that are Christian-related, Catholic-related, you know, uh, A Traveler in Rome, uh, you know, in the steps of St. Paul and the steps of Master, those kinds of things are books that not only will increase your knowledge of history and the locations, but they will increase your faith because ours is an incarnational religion, and it's worked itself out through time in a very physical way. And to get to know the Catholic faith on the ground, so to speak, through its history, is a way to become broader in your faith, far beyond just the list of doctrines and devotions and, you know, such things. You know, all of it needs to go together, together to be a well-rounded Catholic, I'd say. And knowing Catholic history, and knowing Catholic places is so important. And uh, we have Catholic places, of course, in the U.S., but ours being such a new country, we don't have very many of them. And we, of course, we don't have the lineage, the, the connection through the centuries. And ours has been mainly historically not a Catholic country. You know, it's mainly Protestant in origin. Mm-hmm. But someplace like the Holy land, or, or uh, certainly Rome, are places with a distinctive Catholic stamp that once you get to know about it, you become intrigued with it. And I think you, you, you want to expand your faith on the one side, your knowledge of the doctrines and so on, to help you better understand the people you learn about, the people who built these structures and so on, especially in Christian Rome. On the one hand, you want to understand better what they believed, which is what you should be believing. And on the other hand, uh, you you get a a sympathy with seeing how Catholics lived through the centuries, the troubles they had, the successes they had, and how, in so many ways, the faith as manifested in everyday life of a century or five centuries ago or ten centuries ago was so much like what we go through, you know, human nature hasn't changed. And so it's not surprising that we would expect to find in a kind of travel book of Rome that goes through the whole length of the church, church's existence. We expect to find people in many ways, very much like ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Uh, And uh, so this is an interesting contribution because in the past we've talked about various approaches to history Uh, like the comprehensive approach of a Warren Carroll or uh, a kind of uh, swaggery approach of Belloc. And, of course, even the humorous approach like your own work, uh, 1054 and all that. So this is an interesting component to our discussion. So I hear the music coming up, Carl. We'll hit pause right there. We're chatting with Carl Keating and talking about classic apologetic work by H.V. Morton. More to come right after this.
2: This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to
0: Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the classic works, and specifically uh, one classic work of H.V. Morton. And uh, so, Carl, tell us a little bit about his approach in this book. He already did, sort of. Uh, is is he a character in the book? So he's taking you through the city and describing yeah, things it, or, or how does he do it's it in the first,
1: yeah it's in the first person and he'll okay. talk about hiring a car or wherever he might be in the world hiring a car and going to here and there meeting local people learning things you know and in rome he passes a fountain and he he talks about the history of the fountain as i say one of his books is actually the fountains of rome hmm. and uh but throughout the book then there's a lot of the first person he's you're in the back seat when he's, when he's with him, when he's being driven to wherever the place is. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, he'll have lengthy discussions about the history and the personalities of the place. Uh, you know, when uh, people go to Rome, especially if they've been more than once, they develop favorite places to visit, places that they will return to on each visit. Mm-hmm. And I'm that way, but I think I'm a little peculiar in my priorities. I don't know how many times I've been to Rome, a fair number. Uh, And, you know, for some people they go to St. Peter's every trip or they might go up to the Capitoline Museum or the Roman Forum or what have you. Uh, But there's one place in Rome that I go every time and uh, it's something not known by a lot of tourists, at least not American tourists, more known by British tourists. And that's Something found at the foot of the Spanish Steps. At, at the top of these steps, uh, which were famously presented by the, by the way, in the movie uh, Roman Holiday, uh, oh. uh, you know, which which uh, had some scenes on the steps. At the top of the steps is a church, but at the bottom, if you as you're facing the steps, on your right, at the corner of the uh, steps, is the what's called the, the Keats House. It's where the poet, the British poet John Keats, briefly lived and died in 1825. <laughs> and on the other side at the base of the steps is the, place, the one place in Rome I visit on every trip, which is Babington's Tea Room. And in going through uh, Morton's book uh, last evening, as I was preparing for today's show, I was delighted to be reminded that he had an extensive little section early on in the book about Babington's Tea House.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so he, he shared with me more uh, history of it than I remembered. But Babington's was a place that uh, a Spencer lady uh, named uh, Babington, who was descended from a Catholic family, uh, founded this uh, tea room in uh, Rome in 1893 and it was in a couple of spots before it ended up in this location and the building, curiously enough, at one time had been the, the stables for a neighboring villa. <laughs> but of course it doesn't look like it. There's been no horse there for more, for more than a century. Uh, but she but she had a, um, uh, a woman friend who, who, also an English woman, who, uh, her name is uh, Cargo. And uh, the two of them founded this tea house, which is still there. And uh, Miss Cargill eventually got married. She was from New Zealand. Actually, she wasn't British. She's was from New Zealand. But Miss um, Babington was actually from uh, from England, and she was somewhat related to the 18th century, 19th, 19th century British historian Thomas Babington Macaulay. Uh, so anyway. Uh, reading this book of Morton's, I was delighted to, to see, oh, yes, yeah, he's got two or three pages about uh, Bevington's tea room and, and what happened there and so on. And uh, I was just so delighted. And he, he's writing, you know, 1957.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he said that even at that late date, uh, there were still working at the tea room a couple of ladies who had worked at it when Miss Babington ran it, you know, half a century before. So it's little things like this that uh, Morton brings out about any place he goes, you know, whether it's a museum or, or, you know, something big like the Roman Forum or St. Peter's itself. uh, You know, it's it's a delightful way to get to know the kinds of things that... Most travelers never get to know about Rome, and so here we have a situation. where, you know, Catholic lady Miss Babington came to Rome, uh, founded a, a tea room to cater to British visitors because in the late 19th century, Rome had become a popular stop for vacations for people from England. And so she said, "Well, you know, they've got to have tea. You know, Romans drink no, coffee, sure. so I got to bring <laughs> tea to them." And and it worked out. So it's been there all these years. And um, uh, but it's the kind of thing that, that Morton writes about, you know, hundreds of little things like that in, in this book and, you know, in his other books, too. same kind of approach. So it's, it's very much a first person approach. You know, he goes, in this case, to the tea house, has tea there, and then tells you all about the history of the tea house and so on and so forth. And, you know, he'll go into a church and go into a side chapel and there's a painting by, say, Botticelli or somebody, and he'll mm-hmm. talk about that. And they talk about the history of the characters in the painting, and then the history of the painting itself, how it was made, where, where previously it might have held, uh, been, been hung, and so on. And then, uh, you know, he'll pass a grave marker someplace, or, or a plaque on a wall. Now, uh, for example, he'll he'll he'll, he'll uh, see a wall commemorating some tragedy that might have occurred in Rome, you know, and he'll then he'll talk about the history of that and so forth. So he's got a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, that you simply don't get from, as I said earlier, from a normal guidebook.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, um, I wonder how much of the, uh, what he wrote in that particular book is still true today. Like the paintings are still in the same place, the the places are still open. Do you think there's much of a carryover from the fifties till today?
1: Almost complete carryover, oh. I would say. Because uh, yeah. I, I remember using this, you know, reading the book prior to making some of my trips to Rome. I don't, never carry the book with me because it's you know pretty good sized and I try to travel light. right But uh, I would go through and say, okay, I marked this, I marked that. I mean, you know, in Rome there are only a, a few thousand things you need to see. <laughs> you can only see a, a few thousand on a trip. So, you have to make your priorities. And my priorities often are for small things. You know, I've been to St. Peter's. I like St. Peter's. I've been there more than once. But I really like going to out of the way stuff, like some of the fountains he mentions in his other book. And I track them down, for example. And he had mentioned there's a famous fountain with turtles. And, you know, so I would check that out, that kind of stuff. Hmm. And so I would use his book to make a list of places or things I wanted to see. And i make some notes to myself from it. And okay, here's the history of that. Here's a reminder to myself of what this thing will be once I get to see it, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't remember ever coming across a situation where he wrote about something and I show up there and it's no longer there, you know. Mm. It's certainly not the case for any of the buildings because the buildings <laughs> don't get up and move and They don't get destroyed, fortunately. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, it's, and by the way, on, on that basis, I should I should say, uh, let's let's give um, uh, uh, at least a silent thank you that the novelist H. G. Wells' wish never came true in his one of his final books called "Crooks on Sata," published in 1944. In that book, Wells, who was famous as a science fiction writer, and all. Wells displayed his extreme anti-Catholicism, where his advocacy in the book was for the Allies to bomb Rome to smithereens in order to destroy the Catholic Church. And so fortunately, that never happened. Yeah. Now, you, you know, you, maybe you as a boy, I was as a boy, you, you, you read H.G. Wells' novels, you know, The Invisible Man, and so on. Sure. But he never knew about this part of his character. But yeah. he was a vicious anti-Catholic, and he actually wanted Rome just flattened completely to get rid of the Church. So we can be grateful that that was never carried out or seriously considered right. by anybody. So when we go to Rome and we're you know, we we're, we're reading something like H.V. Morton, and here it is uh, well more than half a century ago that he wrote this book, we can still go there and basically see everything, I think, that he mentions. I mean, obviously he talks about people who no longer are there, uh, but he uh, nevertheless gives you a wonderful sense of, especially especially to me, Christian Rome. I mean, he goes in a lot on pagan Rome, you know, ancient Rome uh, from before the time of the Caesars, you know, up to the, the Dark Ages and so on. Yeah, it covers mm-hmm. a lot of things there, because Rome is full of those remains, those monuments. But more of Rome, uh, in terms of square footage, is actually Christian Rome. And so there are the basilicas, and so on. He, he mentions, for example, which, which I thought was interesting, he mentioned that that his favorite basilica, of the major basilicas, was St. Paul's outside the walls. Hmm. And, you know, there are others. I mean, there's St. There's Peter's Basilica itself, you know, the St. John Lateran Basilica, hmm. which is actually the parish church of popes. You know, St. Peter's is not their parish church. St. John Lateran is. And so that's actually the 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 Cathedral of Rome, St. John Lateran, but St. Peter's and and St. John's are both within the old walls. Well, some of the old walls, but uh, St. Peter, St. Paul's, is outside the walls. And I was a little surprised when he mentioned that because the current St. Paul's was actually a reconstruction after I think a fire in 1823 or so that destroyed the original building. But anyway, I was a little surprised that he. Would point to that, because even though it was, as I understand it, faithfully reproduced from what had existed, nevertheless, it's, that building is only two centuries old, uh, yeah. which in Roman terms is yesterday. Right. So, so, so anyway, I just found that interesting. And uh, you know, there's so much as I, as I flip through the book. You know, I have a habit. I don't know what you do when you get with books. But I make pencil marks in the margins,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and uh, that's the way I can find things to go back to.
0: Absolutely. We're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the works of HV Morton, more to come right after this. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics Hmm. with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the classic works of H.B. Morton, specifically his book on Rome. And, uh, Carl, I, I was privileged to spend a week in Rome, and one of the big takeaways I had was there's no way you can s- spend only a week in Rome. I, th- I think you'd almost want to live there. There's so much history. And so uh, Morton's book, I, I think, would be invaluable for someone who's thinking of visiting Rome.
1: Yes, it would, because one of the problems is that most people think, okay, here are the top ten things. And matter of fact, there are books called The Top Ten Things to See in Rome. And, mm-hmm. and they are important to see, but uh, they're all very huh, touristical, put it that way. You know, the crowds mm-hmm. are, are large, everyone else is going there. And yes, you need to see St. Peter's, you need to see you know, the catacombs, and, and so on and so forth. Right. But then you have to decide, okay, if I'm spending a week in Rome, and I can cover those top 10 things in two days, then what? What do I see? And you could just walk around and just stumble into things, and that's a wonderful thing to do. But Mm. far better is to prepare yourself to go off to the side of it, to places that the tourists don't normally go, uh, and discover things there. And uh, I think this kind of book is especially good for that. And, you know, Martin was English. And so, of course, he had an eye toward writing about things that might appeal to the English reader. And often he's talking then about uh, English folks who have had some connection with Rome. I mentioned, you know, Miss Babington and her tea room. But here's another one that, that I thought really interesting, a little story about Oh, I'm not even sure the century that it occurs, maybe the 19th century or so. And he said, let me just read this. It says, at, the, at the same time, another Englishman, who afterwards became Sir Thomas Trowbridge, captured several French ships loaded with Vatican art treasures, which the British government returned to the Pope. I read somewhere that in recognition for his part in the affair, Trowbridge was given the right to incorporate the crossed keys of St. Peter on his family arms. thats very unusual. Hmm. Then it says, it is curious to see how unrelated events are often associated for it was this act of justice on the part of the British government that is returning the artworks, which caused the Vatican some years later to grab permission for the establishment of the non-Catholic cemetery in Rome, which is called normally the Protestant cemetery. That's colloquially the Protestant cemetery. And this is where Hmm. Keats Uh, John Keats is buried and also where the ashes of um, the poet Shelley are buried and also quite a few other prominent English people Mm. so here you had a situation where an an Englishman captures Roman artworks being stolen by the French, returns them to Rome and in in thanks uh, the Protestants of England are allowed to have a cemetery in Rome
0: yeah yeah, that is kind of so, cool. You know, yeah. Little
1: things like, yeah, little things like that, you know. So this book is just, just full of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, before the break, I mentioned St. Paul's Outside the Walls.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, one of the things that Morton mentions about it, it was the first uh, basilica to have the apse, that is the, the far end of the church, uh, facing towards the east. Uh, In essence, the rising sun Which is associated, of course, with the the rising sun of God coming out of the Mm -hmm. East Uh, This is the first time That that when it was established The first building, not the current building, of course But the first building established in the uh, I think 5th century It was uh, It began the architectural Habit or custom Of orienting Catholic churches So that The far end of the building would be Facing the East and so you, read, you know the, the the door would be at the west end and the altar would be at the east end. And he said it must have been a strange experience for Christians of the fourth century, when the large basilica had been completed—not the present one, but but enlarged one over what, what the very first building had been—with the apse facing facing east, to see the priest officiating officiating at the altar with his back to them. He says and he said now. 1957. That's the normal position, which is known as ad Orientum. So the hmm. priest uh, would be facing the east because all the churches were facing the east. You'd enter the door, the main door, and you'd be walking down the nave to your pew, and you'd be going in an eastward direction toward the rising sun. And uh, but there was, there were some exceptions to that. And one of them, of course, is St. Peter's Basilica itself, uh, simply because of the way the ground is there. You know, it, it was. An ancient cemetery built on a slope, the building had to be constructed facing the other direction. So uh, the door is at the east end and the apse is at the west end. And so in St. Peter's, when the Pope would celebrate facing east, he'd have to face the congregation. But that was an exception until modern times, you know, until our own lifetime. Uh, where the buildings, you know, almost everything since the 4th century onward, with a few exceptions like St. Peter's itself, the church would be facing towards the east, so therefore you have the custom of the priest and the people facing the same direction uh, at Orientum, to the east, uh, with, as I say, a few notable exceptions like St. Peter's Basilica. Now, in recent years, Many churches have been built without any regard for their orientation to the compass. Um, and so when you come across a, a modern church that's facing the East in that, in that way, it might just be an accident and not even have been intentional. But for about 1,500 years, that was uh, the custom. And it, in, a, in a way, it grew out of the way that uh, the Basilica of St. Paul Outside the Walls was constructed. And then what what came from that. So those are the kinds of you know, architectural historical tidbits that Morton brings up, I think, to our better understanding of our customs and habits. And uh and, and also just just in my case, to my delight, I I love learning about such things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I oh, I totally agree. Yeah, and uh especially to be able to put yourself, you know, in the shoes of the fourth century and, and kind of uh you know, uh, hear that whole story about the orientation of the churches and and things like that. It um, really does uh, increase your appreciation for it. Yeah, I, I was yeah. I visited uh, St. Paul outside the walls, and when you mentioned that, I was surprised too that he would pick that particular basilica because there's so many gorgeous basilicas in Rome, and and, and it's very nice. I, don't get me wrong, it's a beautiful basilica, but. Uh, um, you know, I'm my, just surprised my church
1: group, Yeah, my favorite church in Rome is not one of the basilicas at all. It's it's next door to a basilica, St. Mary Major. Oh yeah. It's called uh, Santa Prisetta, which is a small church, uh, built I think mm. in the eighth century, and uh, it's got part of the pillar against which Christ was scourged, mm. and it's just about the only church I think in Rome that is full of mosaics which is something you find, for example, in Ravenna. You know, all the churches there have great mosaics. But in Rome, mosaics were not really used. But in this church, it was. So Santa Prasetta, which is not well known to most American travelers to Rome, is my favorite. Uh, Mm. And, you know, so I'm not so surprised that Morton chose as his favorite, a much better known church, but still one, uh, St. Paul's Outside the Walls, that might not be the number one attraction to a lot of other visitors.
0: Right. Yeah, and of course, it uh, it has the relics of St. Paul himself, so that's also a big plus, besides the architecture yeah. and all the other.
1: Oh, indeed. It, it, yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, the relics, the, the side chapels, I mean, you could spend in any of the major basilicas there. Yeah. St. John, St. Peter's, St. Paul's. You could spend a whole day just looking at the side altars and the, the the sculptures and the paintings and the mosaics and what have you, you could it would take you a long day to really get the sense of things. There's just so much there, and of course the ones we're talking about are massive structures on their own. I mean, you just right. don't find anything like that in America in terms of a church building, and not even our, our largest ones match the grandeur and, and the square footage of what you what you see there. So you can. You could spend, you know, a very long vacation doing nothing but visiting the major basilicas of Rome.
0: Yeah, uh, that's and, true.
1: And that's it. Period. Period. Yeah, you know, that's it. And and you and you you still would have more to learn about them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and plus there's all like you said there's fountains there's little grottos there it it seemed like no matter where you went you bump into history so I could see where more of Yeah. Mormon's and also were. very It'd important
1: There's Babington's Tea House. And there are gelato shops.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? Yep.
1: <laughs> so you have to you have to go to the tea house and you have to get gelato. There you Orthodox go. Italian gelato.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't uh, matter absolutely. if
1: you go in winter; you still have to have gelato. You
0: know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, Carl. Uh, hey, this is a great pick. You know, as always, when we, we do a book that I never read before, I, I got to pick it up because it just sounds fantastic. Do you know if it's still available in print? Uh, I haven't checked. I would presume so. Uh, Several of his books must be in print. So I would, if you
1: find a book of his, say at Amazon or something, pick it up. You will, you will not be disappointed. Get several of them. I mean, uh, he was a great writer and he was very well known in his time, but, but has sort of dropped out of the Catholic consciousness in the last half century or so. But, uh, you will not be disappointed by any of his books. And that's true not just of you, Gary, but of any of our listeners.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I'm putting that on my wish list. I'm going to, right after the show, jump on Amazon and see whether it's available or not. Um, sure. Yeah, great, great pick. And uh, I love books like that, especially when it, you know, like you can – Visit the place and know the history behind it and so on. Uh, f- we only have maybe a minute left in the show. And as always, I want to find out what's what's next on your docket. You're such a busy guy for being in retirement.
1: Well, actually, I'm in the midst of language study. Uh, in the evenings, I'm I'm going back to uh, refreshing my Italian because I do want to get to Italy. Uh, mm-hmm. whether, I don't think I'll spend time in Rome on that trip, but I want to get there. And in the mornings, I'm studying Japanese because my wife and I hope to return there in November. Oh. So, I'm trying to refresh myself in both regards so that when I go to either place, I'm able to maneuver with some convenience.
0: Excellent. Yeah, not a lot of carryover between the two languages, is there? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, no, but, yeah. um, but you know, they're, they're sort of next up on my travel itinerary. so.
0: We'll see. All right. Excellent. Well, Carl, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Always great
0: to be with you, Gary. All right. Carl Keating. Uh, Yeah, everybody, uh, pick up a copy of H.V. Morton, uh, any one of his books. Also, check out carlkeating.com. Pick up uh, Carl's classic works as well. Well, the hour is gone. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be again again next week doing hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone.